0: This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning. This is case number 22 in the Muman Khan, Kashapa's flagpole. Ananda asked Maha Kshapa, "The Buddha gave you the golden woven robe of successorship. What else did he transmit to you?" Kashapa said, "Ananda." "Yes," answered Ananda. "Take down the flagpole at the gate," said Kashapa. Muman's comment, "If you can give a turning word that is intimate." You will see the, meet, the meeting at Mount Gudakutra is definitely present here. If not, no matter how much you make struggles to study from the age of Vipassan, you cannot attain enlightenment. Woman's verse. The calling out is good, but even better is the answering. How many are there that have opened their true eyes? Elder brother calls and younger brother answers. The family disgrace. This spring does not belong to yin and yang. So as the central theme of this three-month training period of Ango, we've been studying heritage from many, many different perspectives. This uh, temple is the heritage that we practice in from the time of the Buddha. Buddha. How do we understand the heritage that we're given with all of its subtleties and that we're now creating for those who follow? So have you ever thought of your own heritage? Of the effects of your life and your practice on those who will follow? And when I say practice I mean really the practice of your life not just the narrow sense of Zen practice. Have you considered what, what your life offers to those who will come after us. What is your heritage individually, our heritage, collectively? After all, your presence here is directly attributable to the actions arising out of a person's desire to awaken 2,500 years ago. I've said before I, I in my early years of Zen practice when I was a student of uh, Philip Roshi, that my practice was entirely due to his decision in 19 maybe 51, maybe earlier to go to Japan and to train in Zen at a time when no Westerner had ever done that to my knowledge in the most austere of circumstances, um, entering a monastery in the northern end of Japan, didn't have a single chair. They had to import a chair for him. Um, eating rice, basically, as your food, and doing sushen in the most uh, direct way. And he did that, Kapila Roshi, because of his desire to wake. And how um, Thirty years later, me meeting him and becoming his student led to me being here now. And the actions of a lot of other people who followed similar paths led to you being here. And where do your actions lead? So these journeys echo to here and now in this temple And thousands more like it in different places, in different temples, in different practices, and therefore the effects on different lives. When I look at this temple, or I look at the monastery, and I look at the specifics of how, well, how well it does, and how nice it is. We had uh, a visiting Lama Lama, Rod Owens, you may know him or know of him, Who is here this week for a morning, and he was struck by how beautiful the place is which maybe isn't so easy for me to see I tend to look at it in terms of functionality uh, and um, and so how does that happen it happens through very individual efforts from specific people uh, when I walk down the stone steps at the monastery you know, down the hill if you've been to the monastery and you know how many of those steps there are I mean, I watched the person who laid them do that, specifically. That's no small thing, to lay these enormous bluestone rocks, rocks isn't slabs, um, which come from the mountain, from that mountain, Mount Tremper. And you'll still find places in New York City which have them as sidewalks that come from that mountain, that bluestone. All done by somebody individual. You see that hole in the ceiling? Where there was a leak coming, dripping on the heads of the people who were sitting directly under it. I'm assured that will not happen. Uh, And now needs to be, has been repaired, but now the ceiling needs to be fixed. Someone specific is going to do that, of the Arsanga. He's going to travel, put their time and labor and skill, the skill of a lifetime, because that's not a simple job. You think of the effect of gravity on plastering a ceiling. um, Devoting themselves to that. Or of you being here, devoting yourself so that we can sit together. This is heritage. You're creating the heritage for people to come tomorrow. Tomorrow. The energy of the sitting will affect those who come tomorrow. And affect, of course, you yourself. And so it goes. And what is that about? It's about a transmission of awakening. That's all that's going on in these temples and places. Awakening. Now, awakening can mean many different things to many different people, but it's a realization of the truth of your being. Realization means that you see it for yourself, know it for yourself, but not as something outside you or something as graspable, but as you yourself, as You yourself. Not different than you yourself. And it is both a process of a lifetime, which at no point do you get to stop and measure and encapsulate and put in a box and label whatever you want to label it, and moment after moment of practice. There are formal transmissions and informal transmissions within Zen practice. Yet, ultimately, they're the same transmission, the same ongoing confirmation of this heritage that you embody in being here, without exclusion. How many people have sat in temples in India in Burma and Tibet and China and Korea, in California and New York and in every state and most cities in the United States and in Europe? You know, you can't throw a rock without hitting a Zen temple now in the United States, you know. Um, I live in a tiny town in a, a very, very rural Pennsylvania when I'm not here for the most part. And although there's, there's no immediate Zen place, center, temple, there's a couple within an easy drive. Um, the nature of the population doesn't, and the density of the population doesn't lend itself to being the most popular places, but they're there for people to find when I started practice, formal practice in 1978, there were maybe three or four places in this country that you could go to. So you went. You just went. And all this is so you can be here today, so that you can have the opportunity to practice the Dharma and to hear the Dharma, to awaken to your own true face. So we're at a particular time and place within Buddhism, within the mountains and rivers order. We're always at a particular time and place. Within the greater Buddhist sangha. And that particular time and place is where understanding that the transmission of the Dharma is particularly crucial. Because it's so easy for it to become another thing that we do or is done. And become something graspable and understandable and handleable, and manageable. And it's not. Because you yourself are not graspable and handleable, and I hope, not manageable. So this transmission is not just from teacher to a new teacher, but from teacher to student the entire time that you've been a student of a teacher, the entire time you've been practicing This transmission is mind to mind. It's a religious experience to awaken, a deeply religious spiritual experience to awaken. In other words, the entire journey is that. This is not business as usual. This is not, I want what I want, and what do I have to do to get what I want? And that's what this is about. It's not that. Although we may have mistaken it for that, time after time after time. Although we may have to remind ourselves time after time after time that it is not business as usual. It is not me as usual. And that's the appeal. That we're not bound by our usual very small sense of ourself and the possibilities of our life. And it's also the challenging side of it. Because we can't know from our small sense of self how large we are and what the possibilities of this lifetime are. When I look at the people who I trust and admire within the MRO, I don't have to name names, but my peers and the senior practitioners, each an individual, each of a specific life, and I look at their journeys, there's, there's a place which I don't quite say to them, but which is real for me. And it goes, holy shit. They have taken up their life in such a way. I'm going to not just talk about the monastics. In fact, in a way, they're the least of it. And it's, in a way, you know, because that path is so specific, um, you know, a pretty outlined path, having been both a lay student and a monastic, I can speak to this with some sense of experience. That how that transformation happens in the midst of life, in the midst of the challenges and the health and sicknesses and um, what we all face as human beings. a A life, a good deal of the time, is not going to go our way. And so what will you do? How will you practice that? And I look at how these folks wearing white robes and black robes and gray robes, practice their life. And there's a little voice in me that goes, holy shit, enormous admiration and inspiration for me in my life. And I hope for you in yours. Because if you're around and continue to practice, there'll be people who look at you the same way. They're probably not going to say anything because that may not be helpful, but they... You are that inspiration. That's the heritage. And so, our ongoing practice is a testimony to the awakened mind, which is always present, whether or not we think we're aware of it. And therefore, we should understand that within our awakening, there is no one who awakens and nothing to awaken to. There's not something that we're going to grasp and own and define. We should know that. This practice is endless and not limited to our knowledge or assessment of what we may think or know about our practice and realization. That's too small. We cannot grasp the implications of the heritage that we're stepping into and certainly the heritage to come. We cannot grasp that. We cannot know that. The teacher's job is to support the student in their practice of awakening, in their practice of realizing their fundamental nature and expressing this in their life, even as the teacher's job is to continue to do that for themselves as another practitioner. As part of this process, the teacher is confirming the student's awakening, which acts to maintain the mind-to-mind transmission. That is an ongoing process, Two weeks ago, we had a fusatsu ceremony here on a Sunday. A renewal of our vows to uphold the, the Buddhist understanding of the ethics and morality of how we live. And this is an import, crucial to our practice. The ethics and moral perspective of how we understand our life in relation to other people and all other things. At the time... I said of Jakai, the ceremony where we formally take up the precepts as the, the central pillar of how we live our life, that when we take that up, that that is part of the mind-to-mind transmission. That is from teacher to student. It's very personal. And as I've said already, to think that there is something called awakening is to go astray. So what actually is being transmitted? What actually do you get? It's easy to say nothing, but that's not quite it. And it's easy to say something, but that's not quite it. So here, that question is taken up as a koan. Ananda was the Buddha's attendant from the time he was 23 years old until the Buddha died, many, many, many years later, attending, attending, attending. It is said that Ananda could remember every word of the Buddha's discourses. And so every sutra that you look at starts with, thus I have heard. He heard it. And here it is. So Ananda was considered brilliant with an idactic memory. Everything that... Encountered, he remembered and could recall. Yet at the time of the Buddha's death, he had not yet awakened. It's interesting. The challenge of intellectual smarts and thinking ability is a real challenge to Zen practice, and to some degree, it applies t- to all of us. Um, I mean, we've gotten where what we, whatever it is, we value through our careful discriminatory use of our mind, of our intellect, and the emotional power that we all possess. And I'm not sure you can draw the line between those two, because our mind is our mind. Uh, The intellectual processes are usually linear and sequential, and work by identification and assessment and judgment. We all know how to do that, don't we? You can't navigate this world without these things. But these abilities don't help us when we're looking at the fundamental questions of who we are and what is life and death and why is there suffering and what can I do about it? You know, what can I really do about it and how do I live my life in that context and live my life, really live my life? So this is the stuff of profound religious investigation It doesn't fall into linear sequential boxes. It's not containable. And that's one of the reasons religion tends to use, I don't know what you'd call it, um, sometimes fantastical sounding expressions to, to point to what is difficult to express in any other way. In Zen, we're not relying on a belief system or an expert's opinion. This practice is about you. You. Specifically, you. Your insight, your wisdom, your realization as you practice and go along. Your inquiry into your questions, however they might be framed. And your responsibility to answer in accord with your own life and your own desires to answer them. To question. Interestingly enough, the inquiry and response to these questions is already within you. The so-called answer is already yours. But, of course, we discriminate. We divide up what is a single whole. And we use this Fine tool of a discriminating mind in the wrong place. It's like taking a finely finely honed chisel and you know wrecking the edge on an inappropriate use. Um, so we separate into parts and pieces. We try and grasp it and take that for the whole, and that's the problem. We take it for the whole. We take our understanding for understanding something which inherently we are not truly understanding. And it gets even more challenging when the understanding has a strong emotional component. And then we get confused. Um, I'm referencing this happening within the MRO, but within Buddhism in general, you know, the, the scandals that to one extent or another may be happening. Usually, but not always, men taking advantage of positions of power. So called enlightened people. Enlightenment doesn't exclude abuse of power. And the manifest confusion and self doubt that this can cause in seeking on direction from others and depending on those others to stake out our own life. And the result, as the Buddha pointed out, is we're always reaching for something outside ourselves, something out there, which we can never attain. And yet, there is the teachings. There are teachers. And they're essential. So where's the confusion about that? You have to discern for yourself what that is. You have to see for yourself what you're choosing to rely on, what you're choosing to trust. You have to see for yourself what is your own responsibility. What are your own betrayals of power and abuses? What does it mean to be a human being? So here Ananda asks Mahakashapa, the first successor to the Buddha. Buddha gave you the golden woven robe of successorship. What else did he transmit to you? So what's he really asking here? What's underneath that question? What did the Buddha give you that made you whole? Don't we ask this? Don't we expect from our practice to make us whole? Maybe even demand that? So what did he give? So there's this Raksu that Chugin Roshi transmitted to me. Another was transmitted to say, Sensei and a different one because she's a monastic to Hojun Sensei at the time of their transmission. There's this cuts, which is a teaching aid and a sign of spiritual empowerment. Empower, power, But these are only the symbols of the transmission. There's also a process, a week long ceremony of transmission in our lineage. It's directly between the teacher and student, other than a witness present during a few parts of it to bear witness that that transmission actually happened. No one else is present. It's a mind to mind transmission. So Ananda's asking about this is it something mystical? Is it material? What is it? And how can I get some? And since the transmission is mind-to-mind, what is actually being transmitted? It's not a casual question. We speak words such as realization, enlightenment, clarity, intimacy. But what is the mind of these descriptions or words? What is the actuality of them? He's really asking, how can I awaken to my own true face? How can I do that? I'm really not that interested in what he gave you. What about me? Thank you very much. I've said this before, but my sister, who has since passed, but we were very close, and we would speak every week. My older sister, who partially raised me, uh, we'd get on the phone. She was fascinated by my life And the specifics of how I live it. And she would say, Okay, tell me what's happening. And I would launch into the first sentence. She would say, Okay, that's enough about you. What about me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she was making a joke, but it's not such a joke, is it? Uh, How subtly our mind can do that. Kashapa said, in response to the question, Ananda, is he calling for his attention? Is there something to follow this? Is it a preamble? Ananda, is there any lack here? How might you respond if someone suddenly called your name? Yes, answered Ananda. Is this an affirmation of Ananda's self? Is it a hi, I'm here. How's it going? Shibuyama Roshi, in his commentary on this koan, tells of another master's comment on, the, teacher, on the, teacher's and the teacher-disciple relationship and the calling and answering, and he says it in a poem. Two mirrors reflect each other. There is no image in between. Picture that. Two mirrors reflecting each other without an image in between. When our practice is ripe, and of course we do not know this, when your name is called, the universe is calling. And nothing, absolutely nothing, is being left out in the answer. Nothing. The universe calling can be seen as a plum blossom, as hearing the wake-up bell, it's a shun. As a train whistle, or voice is passing outside. The universe is always calling. And the call is always of your name. Always of your name. The calling and the response. A single wholeness. Not much to add to that. So Mahakashapa says, take down the flagpole. He's referring to the flag that historically is raised when a teisho, a dharma talk, is being given. So the flag goes run up. This tesho is over. Thank you, Ananda. This is mind to mind. Right there. Yet our original mind is wholly present from the beginning. It's a mind without boundary. It's clear. It's cognizant. It's aware. It's ever-present. It's always been there. Realizing this mind is the freedom from suffering. doesn't mean you won't suffer, but you're free when you do suffer. Interesting way to look at it, isn't it? how, How might we think of freedom from suffering? Well, there isn't any suffering, right? But it's not like that. I mean, common sense tells you it's not like that. They're suffering, there'll always be suffering. And even if you happen to be one of those whose life is so wonderful from birth to death, and there are such people, that, of course, is a most profound kind of suffering. Because they're not necessarily looking around them and seeing, of all, seeing the suffering of all the other beings which is, in fact, their own suffering. And how do you live a life like that, anyway? Without being a vampire. Without taking what is inherently not yours. Stealing. So realizing this mind, gradually, breath by breath, moment by moment, and all at once, is the pouring forth of compassion into this world of so much suffering. That's the realization. That your own body and mind is the body and mind of all beings. Now it would be nice if there was a period at the end of that sentence and that would be the end of it, right? From that realization that my body and mind is the body and mind of all beings, end of story, period, That. But actually, that's just where the journey begins. Because here we are in this particular body and mind. This particular one. Your particular one. Skillful and unskillful. Clumsy and very elegant. Able and failing. Healthy and sick. My mother's dying, my father's dying. Oh, now I'm dying. And yet there is a clear realization of the relationship between you and every other being that doesn't belong to the world of understanding, that lives as your alive body and your dying body. Now what are you going to do? What are you going to do with this? Well, this doesn't start with some mystical great moment of realization. This is now. What are you going to do now? How are you going to work with this? This being the suffering, your suffering, the suffering of others. How are you going to manifest and address your own inherent compassion in a way that is skillful and clumsy, and holds both of that as the wholeness of your being. How are you going to manifest your own uh, compassion and desire to help others when, in fact, you do everything with that intent and don't help others, maybe hurt them? What then? This is the life of practice. This is what you signed up for. It's free, no extra charge with whatever you paid for the day. And it's a life of complete freedom and joy also in the midst of all the suffering. It is complete. It's a life of integrity, not in the usual way we understand integrity or honesty. But in a way I don't quite have the words for. But I instantly recognize within myself when I'm living out of that or not. Woman's comment. If you can give a turning word here that is intimate, you will see the meeting at Mount Gudakutra is definitely present here. If not, no matter how much you struggle to study from the age of Vipassana, you cannot attain enlightenment. Intimate is the meaning of Ananda's answer is responsiveness. Yes. What does intimate mean? We talk about intimacy all the time in Zen. To be intimate is to be one, whole, with. And it takes some time to realize that the practice of Zen is the practice of truly being intimate. Because every situation of being intimate is unique to that particular situation. And so we have to be awake, aware, present, to the best of our ability, with whatever is present. Well, that sounds great. What happens when what's present is confusion? Does that sound so great? To be intimate and whole with that? What happens when what is present is... Suffering yours or someone else. I think I'd rather read a good book. I keep catching myself. Do we read books nowadays or we can pick up the reader? <laughs> or, well, to be safe, fill in the blanks of what you'd rather be doing. So we have to practice the way of Zazen to realize this. Zazen is intimacy. That's what you're practicing. And that's why we say. Zazen is awakening itself. Practice is awakening. We have to take ourselves in hand and stare into our being. That's Zazen. Until we are seeing our whole being. Until you can no longer find a boundary to your wholeness. So I'm talking emotionally, intellectually. Using our discriminating mind and using our non discriminating mind. Isn't that interesting? Using our delusions and using our clarity. Isn't that interesting? What does it mean to be intimate with your delusions? Unfailingly, in looking this way, we uncover our true nature simply because what we have so carefully covered up is a fantasy. It has no permanent character whatsoever no truth to it and the fact that we have mistaken what is unreal for real is our ignorance sorry and so seeing clearly is the medicine for our sickness and so these forms of practice are both just forms and not just forms when you enter them completely the form falls away when you're outside it it's a form The details of our life are forms or not forms. They're forms when they're an obligation and how we have to go about our life, and there's a truth to that. And they're no forms when we enter them completely. There's nothing outside that. And so, from the most personal sense, our practice will always come down to what do you, in your life, And the specificity of your being have to do to see clearly and to awaken, to be intimate. And we have to continue to answer that question because the circumstances of our our life are ever-changing. And so the mantra for each of us is don't believe your own PR. What did I just say? Don't believe your own thoughts. Or at least consider them very carefully as a very limited perspective of the wholeness of reality be careful about what you think. So if our practice is only about ourself and our thoughts about ourself, or only about our samadhi, now in the name of practice, it's about ourself, how can the self be truly forgiven? I'm I'm sorry, truly forgotten. And if you can't see into this, no matter how much you struggle to study From the age of Vipassana, you cannot attain enlightenment. Vipassana is one of the the first of the ancient seven Buddhas that predate Shakyamuni Buddha. And we chant these names when we chant the lineage. But he doesn't predate you and your struggles and your practice right here, right now. Because that Buddha is timeless and is present right where you sit, has always been present right where you sit. woman's verse. The calling out is good, but even better is the answering. How many are there that have opened their true eyes? Elder brother calls, younger brother answers. The family disgrace. This spring does not belong to yin and yang. You know, it's easy In a sense, to look around, look at what's going on in the world, in the politics, maybe even look at our own life and become discouraged. But when the time and circumstances of our life rests on bodhicitta, on an unwavering desire to wake up and manifest your life, then we can come alive. We can go beyond shame, humiliation, failure, a thought that we're off course. And we can rely on something that is trustworthy, which is our desire to awaken, and the energy and practice that comes out of that. Our true self is that which is intimate with the truth that you are. And that's why even though the calling out is good, even better is the answering. Yes, answered Ananda. Elder brother calls, younger brother answers. The family disgrace. There's irony here. Muman's good at this. The irony is that the family shame is being exposed. What is that? It's the intimacy between Ananda and Mahakashapa. They for everybody to see. When you see this for yourself, you see how much our life matters. That a, a life is not casual, it's not something to take lightly. You matter. What you do makes a difference for yourself and for others. You see how the ripples of our being reflect all the ripples of all beings, whether we understand this or not. And seeing this for ourselves is important. That's one thing. Making this real as our life is another. Understanding the reality of how we affect others. And so this spring does not belong to yin and yang. Given all the ripples of our and others' beings, all the karma, our practice does not rest on an insight, an awakening, a special moment of true religiosity. Although these Moments exist and occur. But your true life does not depend on this or that yin or yang. And our fundamental practice is seeing into our narrowness, our intractable restlessness, and our restricted vision. And the more we hurt, the more vision our vision gets smaller and smaller out of our fear. And so to study our own mind when our obsessions and our anxieties and our fear take over. Take over and create the same kind of harm we see around us and sometimes into us. Because of this practice at such a time, we can stop. Stop. Stop creating harm for yourself and others. Stop. See it and stop. I'm not talking about suppression here. I'm talking about stop creating evil for ourselves and others. And in doing so, rest. Be in the moment of your true Dharma I, your true awareness. There's no enlightenment here. There's no delusion here. It's just stopping. Just resting in our being which has always been who we are. And so, in this moment, who are you? Where are you? Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at cmm.org.